welcome to Reflections on Interpretation, talking story with guides and interpreters. I am Tim Merriman, your host, coming to you from the Big Island of Hawaii. I am delighted today to be talking to an old friend and a colleague, Michael Glenn, in Scotland, the wordsmith. And Michael became ensnared in interpretation in 1969, the year of the first moon landing, the first Woodstock, and importantly, the introduction of PBS in the USA. He's still a happy prisoner of the profession with a long record of what some kindly describe as achievements. Well, Michael, it's, we're on Zoom. I can see you. The listeners can't, but uh, it's great to see you again. It's been many years. I think it was in San Quirico in oh. Tuscany. Oh, my goodness. We last met. Oh, gee, that's yeah, at least 10, maybe 12. It's been quite a while. We did a trainer's course in San Quirico, which is a World Heritage Valley. And we had folks from about eight different countries. And for me, it was just a joyous week. It was wonderful. It was a very, very beautiful place. And somebody managed to get a good deal on a top class hotel. And we had top class people there. And some of us are still in touch. Yeah, that's that's been great. And and I am still in touch with some of those folks, even some who have left the profession, so to speak. Well, we've had many conversations through the years, but in reality, we probably don't know each other in great depth because sometimes you don't get around to talking about where did you go to school or what did you do? But I'm interested in, in where you grew up and kind of, did you think you'd end up in this field or was this a, something that happened along the way? Well, I grew up in the west of Scotland, just outside Glasgow, um, in a very, very, very beautiful house that I think belonged to my dead grandmother's family. Um, we didn't stay there long, and it's been downhill ever since. But um, the circumstances were interesting because my we stayed during the war with which war, Daddy? Um, the war with my grandfather and his second wife, who was 40 years younger than him, which was most interesting because she was half French. And so I was brought up in a house where there were two languages being spoken. And I hadn't thought about it much until recently and realized, although I'm, my French is not very good, the, um, the, the, this atmosphere of bilingualism was terribly important and it has had a bearing on on my thinking since i couldn't possibly have thought of ending up in interpretation it didn't exist i was 16 before tilden wrote his um inheriting our heritage um we moved from the west of scotland to the east of scotland because my father who came back from the from the war had got a job there as a chartered accountant um, and uh, we lived in what I thought was almost like a castle. And it was only when I was in middle age, I realized we never owned it. It was what we call in this country, a tied cottage. It belonged to my father's employers, um, but it was a house with a tower and a tower we could climb up and lots of other big garden and all the other things. Um, and as I say, after that, it's been, it's been downhill, but um, I had a very good, um, public what, what you call public schooling um i.e local authority funded schooling not not public public schools in britain is a term used for very posh private schools which is slightly confusing um but i had a very good primary school education and then was sent to a fee-paying school in edinburgh um, and although in principle i'm against fee-paying schools I'm still, in fact, not as long ago as an hour ago, got an email from my old school because we're still in touch on various things, um, partly germane to interpretation. So my time then in Edinburgh, six years at school there, was immensely formative. It was a good school. It had a good range of people from all over the place. Um, it wasn't just local kids. And um, I have never regretted my, not that I had any choice, but I've never regretted six years of being allowed, particularly latterly, to do a lot of things that I wanted to do rather than the school wanted to do. 
And when I said to the headmaster, whom I met years and years later, I said, I'm sure half the time you didn't know what I was doing. He said, I can assure you, Michael, we knew exactly what you were doing all of the time. Oh, wow. But it gave me a chance to run the school library with help from a teacher and a lot of other pupils. It allowed me to help run a drama club, to do a, run a country dancing club. Uh, again, not on my own, but I learned my management skills. And in fact, I wrote my first consultant's report in school about the school library. That's germane to what goes on. Um, I had only the one of your questions is, well, you know, what, what did you want to think I'd make a living? I don't think I've ever really made a proper living, but um, one of the things I think I was concerned with then was what one might broadly call handling information, hence the love of libraries, which also introduced to me a love of books and by extension, a love of printing and typography. Um, I certainly learned how to manage people. Managing your school, school friends is more difficult than a paid staff, I can tell you. Um, and some of us are still in, still, in, still in touch after 60 plus years. But I had a very wide general education and was destined to do architecture because of the mix. The schooling in Scotland is broader than it is in England. We, 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 it's halfway to an international baccalaureate in the terms of its width. So you'd study more subjects um, and rather, rather than constantly. So my group of subjects that seemed to lead me towards architecture in which I was interested um, and still am. And I started off doing that. And after a few months, decided the profession was going to be a great deal safer without me and pulled out and had a little bit of a difficult time. But I bought myself a printing machine, which I still have and still use, and learned how to do letterpress printing. And I've now done some quite experimental stuff, which is fun. And I wrote my own first book of poems and printed it and published it. So this question of disseminating information, um, which came from parents who were both keen on words and my grandfather wrote, my great uncle wrote a great many unreadable books. Um, so communicating information, I will say information at the moment rather than interpretation, was in the blood and I had to find a job and I knocked on the door of the public library where my great school friend was already working, my mentor from school. And I said, as we say in Scotland, geese a job, give me a job. And they did. And they put me in the reference department, which meant I was answering people's questions all the time. Uh, so I had three or four years there learning a lot of things and beginning to realize that it wasn't just information that mattered, explanation was what was important. There's a hint somewhere there, although I had not heard. I mean, interpretation even then was only two years after Tilden wrote, I use that as a, as a marker after, you know, 59 I left, I left school. So that my educational, my academic career ended after a few months and I've never gone back. I am not a student. I am not a good reader of books, including books on interpretation. Um, I'm not that much better at writing them, but I'm not good at reading. I learn on the job, and I'm a great believer in sitting by Nelly and learning how to do things from making mistakes. Um, I'm not a student. I'm not remotely academic. Um, I'm certainly not scholarly, but I've got a good intellect. And that's important. During the time that I was in the library, working alongside my great friend, who sadly demitted office quite a number of years ago, we got involved in doing exhibitions about new library books and various other things. And this led on to a big exhibition about the city of Edinburgh in which we did a stand for the public library. So I was funnily enough getting into three-dimensional stuff in, in, in that regard but also getting used to talking um, 
and meeting and explaining to the public in a different way from working purely in the library. And I decided that there was something in that that I might want to pursue, but I didn't know what it, what it was going to be. I mean, I suppose if I'd answered your first question correctly, I would have said, basically, I wanted to be a writer. But I didn't, you don't know how to go about being a writer. And the idea of doing English at university and having to read immensely boring authors and comment on them was absolutely not, not for me at all. I did have to read Dickens and people like that at school, but that was a, a challenge. Um, but after three or four years, for various reasons, I left the library, worked for two years in two different bookshops, which was also interesting. And it's another profession I dipped into. Um, while I was there, um, I was also broadcasting because I'd been involved in a drama group and the producer of it was a radio producer, television producer, playwright, and he gave me a job working on the BBC. I think I was the youngest regular broadcaster in Britain at the time. And I also ran my little printing business. I was doing that as well. So I was quite busy and running, writing plays and running drama groups and you know, sleep wasn't terribly important in those halcyon days. Um, moved out of home. I was living in a flat. Um, I was married at 22, um, which was um, a challenge for two of us. Um, so I was running a home as well. Uh, life was interesting and, and, and busy. As a result of my exploits with doing exhibitions in the library, the head of tourism in Edinburgh, um, who, because Edinburgh is still quite a small city of half a million people, people know each other. And she got in touch and said, we'd like to come and work for her as our exhibitions officer. Well, I didn't really want to be an exhibitions officer, but who's going to turn down a job yeah. as the deputy publicity officer for the city at 20, what was I, 66, 25. Uh, I think I, I only bearded employee along with the city architect. Beards were definitely not um, popular amongst the local authority employees. Anyway, I did two years there and did everything. Um, I wrote guidebooks, I dealt with the public, I ran the information center. And because again, people know each other, I got invited to be head of information at the Scottish Tourist Board. And the boss of the Tourist Board, who'd lived next door to my wife at one time, it's a small world, yeah. uh, said, um, you better come for an interview. You've got the job, but you better come for an interview anyway. So I joined the Scottish Tourist Board at a very interesting time, because at that time it was technically a voluntary organization set up by the tourism industry with government support. But while I was there, in fact, not long after I joined it, it became a statutory organization fully funded by government. And so therefore we became public servants, not technically civil servants, but public servants. Um, and I ran a department, I can't remember how many people, 15, 10 or 15 people doing everything in the field of providing information to prospective visitors and indeed the big information center um, for actual visitors. And I learned a lot. I traveled a lot around Scotland. I met with other tourist boards. And while I was there, and this is the key moment, the, uh, the Damascene moment, the boss of the board sent me on a training course. He said, I don't think there's anybody else here. It's something to do with countryside interpretation. I've no idea what that is, but you'd better go anyway. And I thought countryside, that's got things like trees in it. Don't know much about countryside. However, I was sent with another dozen or 15, I can't remember, um, other people to this old country house to be met by a man called Don Aldridge whose name may be familiar to you. And Don had just been appointed about a year before to another statutory organization, which was called the Countryside Commission to Scotland, which had remit both of protecting the landscape of Scotland, 
and encouraging people to use it. They, they seem to be slightly contradictory, but uh, right. was very much concerned um, under a superb leader called John Foster of encouraging people to get out to the countryside. It was set up a year ahead. It's an old habit in Britain of trying it out on the dog. It was set up a year ahead of the equivalent commission for England and Wales. This was long before devolution, but there were certain devolved organizations. And John Foster had run the first of the English national parks, the Peak District National Park, <clears throat> which is one of the biggest in England, and certainly, if not the busiest, one of the busiest. And while John Foster, who was a planner come other things, was there, he had a chap called Don Aldridge working for him as an information and education officer. And he sent Don to Harper's Ferry to meet the folk who had created Interpreting Our Heritage. Don thinks he went in his own account. John tells me, or told me, because they're all dead, of course. Everybody's dead except me. Um, said that John had sent him. And that was when interpretation in a formalized sense arrived in Britain, really in the Peak District National Park, but because the Scottish Countryside Commission was a year ahead of the one in England, Don Aldridge got his foot in the door and ran the first ever course, technically not for interpreters, but for people who were going to train interpreters. So that was one of my first firsts, being on that first course with Don Aldridge. And it changed, it changed my life. Yeah. It was a moment I realized this was a job I wanted to do. The job of great explanations, as somebody once described it, of interpretation. I had a similar experience because in 1972, I became a park naturalist, but it was two years later that the guy I worked for said, did you know there's an organization meeting in California that an interpretation, I'd never even heard the word other than related to language interpretation. And I arrived there and met the people and a gentleman named Chris Nelson, who was one of the he was involved with youth museums and he was one of the leaders in creating the Western Interpreters Association. And the light bulbs went on for me all over the place because like you, I had seen and heard from my colleagues that my role was giving information to people. And I really realized that wasn't exactly it. I was trying to help people make a meaningful connection with where they were and with the stories and with the culture. and. Uh, what a great moment. I did my best. And in the material we produced um, within our department, we didn't do all the big hotel guides and things, but we did all the, what we just simply called information, publication information. I tried to introduce an interpretive element. So trying to explain, but I can't think that we did a great deal of it. And after four years at the Scottish Tourist Board, I... Um, applied to join the British Tourist Authority, which was probably the biggest tourist agency in the world. I'm not sure. It certainly, um, we had hundreds of staff. And I was the first, um, what, um, what they call provincial chappy to be employed in a manager. All the others were kind of home counties and Oxbridge and all, some one or two of them even been at some of the very best schools. I have to say one or two of the nicest ones had been at some of the best schools. But I got the job alongside another guy who ran the publications and he was similar background to me. We'd come up the hard way, or relatively hard way. Um, and so I was launched into this international organization with offices in 25 countries and a budget then I think about a quarter of a million, God knows, 40 years later, what it'd be now, um, and a staff of 50. And because, you know, there is a fashion in people's first names that goes around, you know, every so often you find, I had eight Susans working for me at one time. Oh, my goodness. Um, 
we ran um, under the tutelage of a formidable woman whose grandfather died on the Titanic playing his violin. She ran the Tourist Information Center, which I will claim was the biggest in the world. She had 15 to 20 trilingual young ladies working for her. Um, and so they were amongst this huge staff of information collectors and disseminators. And I wrote my first paper on interpretation there uh, to our manager's meeting, and it fell on completely deaf ears. It's still the case. Tourism people don't understand interpretation. I have been heard saying, particularly tourism marketing people are thick, an intellectual gap that they do not understand interpretation. And one of the important things, and one of the things that when we became a consultant was that marketing people and interpretive people have to work together. You know, the, the, there's a progression from deciding on what will happen somewhere to selling it to marketing. Anyway, that's beside. Anyway, um, while I was at the British Tourist Authority having a wonderful time and visiting offices in the States and Canada, I managed to get them to send me to uh, New York, Washington, Chicago, Dallas, and Los Angeles. That was an education as well. And my family came over and we visited Colonial Williamsburg and wow. um, what do you call it in, in New England, the, the post Plymouth Plantation. And that was also interesting because I was seeing how you did interpret it. I mean, I, that was part of the reason I wanted to go was to find out because I knew I was heading towards interpretation. But this guy phoned up and said, um, we're calling together a people group of people who are interested in interpretation, uh, which I think you know something about because you were on this course. Would you like to join us? We're thinking of starting an organization. So I sort of, what do you think I did? I jumped at it. And in the headquarters of what I could we call out, or then was called the Forestry Commission, equivalent to your forest service known as Fortress House in London, <laughs> because it was a government building. I met with half a dozen pretty influential people who were most of them certainly 50% years older than me, if not more. I was, what, early 30s, and they were late 40s, 50s, and leaders in their profession. And to cut a long story short, they decided to launch an interpretation association and represented there were the forestry people, the countryside people, the natural, there was a separate natural heritage organization then called the Nature Conservancy. There were two people from museums and the chairman designate was a man from Wales, a museum man called Geraint Jenkins, who was a wonderful advertisement for Wales and became a very close friend. And he put his hand on my shoulder and said, Michael, when we have our meeting, you will be our editor. And I said, I can't do that. I don't, I, 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 Michael, shut up. <laughs> you will be. So in Caxton Hall in London, which was used for civil weddings in London, non-leave religious weddings, we had a meeting in April, 1975, and formed what we called with great brevity, the Society for the Interpretation of Britain's Heritage. That meeting had, if I remember, and I can tell you because I've got a list of them, roughly speaking, of about 150 people, bizarrely, which means interpretation must have been happening in Britain before that. And it had been, and a number of people in what we called country parks, which were a new invention, they were kind of close to cities but countryside areas for visiting they weren't as big as national parks but they were they were run by public purse several of them and people from the various other statutory agencies in scotland and england and wales nobody from northern ireland or ireland at that time um but interestingly enough people from planning departments people who were architects people who were designers i think of the first 200 members of that association, 80 different professions were represented. 
because nobody was, well, very, there's only two of them were actually paid interpreters. Sure. The others all embraced it. So that was, that was immensely exciting to be part of that formation. Although I wasn't still practicing interpretation full time, I was trying to insinuate into what I was doing in the, in the tourism authority. Um, I felt very much part of the profession. I edited the first dozen journals. I didn't just edit them. I wrote most of them. I typed, you remember typing? Typed them up, pasted up photographs, which we pinched from various places, pasted it all up, used Letraset for the headings, which is that plastic scrape on lettering, took it to the printers. They, these were good days when you did everything yourself, but it brought together my book printing, my publishing, my graphic design, my editing and other skills altogether. Uh, and so I became part of that profession at, a, at an, early, an early stage. How did that morph into what's now AHI or? SIBH, as we called it, plowed on. Um, it lost a lot of the people in senior jobs. Um, it's one, one of the biggest problems and one that I helped to fund a study of in about 1999 was why is interpretation not discussed in the boardrooms? Um, it had been originally, but then it was kind of relegated to something that was just done. And that's been a difficulty in this country ever since. But however, at that time, we had a lot of people who were heads of departments in various organizations, both governmental and third sector and, and so on. After, I can't remember exactly, but I would say somewhere approaching the year 2000, the late 90s, what's that? 20 odd years afterwards, we felt the title was A, too long and too clumsy. And B, we were conscious that despite the somewhat troubled history between us and Ireland, Qua Ireland, the Republic, uh, that we wanted to take out the Britain's heritage. And it also meant we could, not that we ever have done really, look overseas and look outside. So that was when we decided to shorten it to the Association for Heritage Interpretation, which like a good constitution, if it doesn't say you can't, then you can. And it, it opened up opportunities. I have always been very conscious of our debt to Ireland in many regards and the awful treatment, and I will say this publicly, the appalling treatment that Britain, England and then Britain meted out in Ireland for about 800 years. And so I was insistent that we regarded ourselves as an association for Britain and Ireland or the United Kingdom of Great Britain and Northern Ireland and Ireland. We get terribly confused in these designations. Um, not least because the history was so closely interrelated. I mean, it's only 102 years since the partition of Ireland. People remember it one generation ago. We went for a job in Ireland about an event that had happened 200 years before and we're told that we hadn't got the story right. Remember, some of the local people were on the other side. Memories, and particularly Celtic memories, rather like Native American memories, are oral memories, and they're very long. Anyway, we became the Association for Heritage Interpretation somewhere about 25 years ago. I, I seem to remember. Um, it's all written down. And we have plowed on since. We don't have a huge membership. We struggle. There is not the same institutional support as there used to be. And in certain circles, I think the idea of doing anything for the public is still anathema. We're not a customer is king country yet. We're working on it. We're learning from you. Um, and where interpretation is done, it's done in most cases extremely well. And there are a lot of people doing it assiduously, both as employees and as contractors, consultants, and so on. Some, somewhere in this mix, Michael, uh, you left your public job, yeah? You became a 
full-time consultant? Yeah, well, after British Tourist Authority, I was seduced by public relations. I thought that's where I was needed. And I moved to another an organization that was involved with industrial training. And we had two or three years of hedonistic life there before the Prime Minister, Margaret Thatcher, closed us all down. <laughs> so I was about to be thrown to the wolves. And just at the very last moment, I got a job with the Countryside Commission for England and Wales, not quite separate from the Scottish one. It had never been so enthusiastic about interpretation. It was a year younger. And yes, there was cooperation in the early days, but this idea of putting a whole lot of effort into countryside things um, was less important. I won't say it wasn't important, but for various reasons, which are far too complicated to explain, it wasn't the same sort of priority. And I, it was a very, very civil service organization and I didn't fit in terribly well. And by that time, I think I decided if it was going to be now or never, uh, and I could go and work for myself. And I had my public relations background because having worked for the training board and then into the Countryside Commission, I'd had a lot of public relations um, experience. I'd also, in the Countryside Commission, got back to meeting a lot of people in tourism and countryside and in interpretation, uh, a lot of my old friends. And so it was the right time to launch myself. I launched myself, first of all, doing publications and graphics as a, as, as a design organization called Western Approaches, which as I was living in the West Country, was a pro the Western Approaches are the sea area to the West of Britain that were used by incoming friends and foe. So it was, it was appropriate name. And I had a partner there for a bit who was had been an MP member of parliament and became a member of parliament is now a member of the House of Lords. So I choose my partner as well. Mm -hmm. But after a bit, I got a call from an old friend from interpretation who said he'd been asked to do a tourism and interpretation strategy. Could I help him? And I said, well, why not? And we won the job against a whole lot of long established consultancies who couldn't understand it. We just told them we were better. Um, and so we formed Touchstone Associates. I remember Touchstone. Yeah. We had a longer title than that because there were so many other Touchstones. And Michael, Michael was the brains and I was the beauty. I, 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 had, I was the creative one and he was the one that kept us on track. Formidable intellect. My previous partner had been at Oxford. Michael had been at Cambridge. You know, it's like Harvard and Yale. And I, I hadn't been either. You know, I, I was the dumb, the dumb, the, I'm not dumb. I was the uneducated one. Michael and I worked immensely well together. He got bored, wanted to do other things. He is a wordsmith, and you were asking about that title, par excellence. He's written books on words and all the rest. And we're still in touch. We're in touch. A few weeks ago, we were back. We were in touch again. But he he packed in. We had a small staff. We'd been taken over by some landscape architects who had an office in Edinburgh. And I said, can we go back to that office in Edinburgh? So I moved um, Touchstone back to Edinburgh exactly 30 years ago. Um, and then closed it down as a business and went on entirely on my own and moved out of Edinburgh to the wilds of Scotland. We were immensely lucky um, in getting some formidable jobs. You, one of your questions is what were some of my projects? So I'll stop at that point in case you want to come in. I'm really interested in that whole trajectory because um, you're aware I'm married to Lisa Brochu. I mean, first of all, she is smarter than I am. She is a better planner. Uh, I'm very fortunate to be her student, despite being 12 years her senior, because I've learned so much from her. We, we've done a lot of courses together. And she often uses the word Smith moniker in referring to what you do. I, I guess I, I have a vision of you standing under a tree with a, a feather and a, a scroll uh, you, you're the smithy in the community. <laughs> you're crafting words that well, 
and power, authority, and influence. You've actually used exactly the right word. I regard myself as a craftsman rather than an artist. I do do creative writing, but essentially I'm, a, and we haven't profession in Scotland or a trade in Scotland, which is called a dry stain diker or dry stone waller, somebody who builds wall out of stone without mortar. It happens in all around the world. It's not unique to Scotland. It's here. For a whole lot of very good geological and other 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 reasons. And I see myself as putting words together to suit the purpose of a client rather than artistically assembling them to suit myself. Now, if I can combine the two, well and good. But that's why I use, I mean, I didn't invent the word wordsmith. It's been around for a very long time. But it's, I, I see it as a craft rather than as an art. Because if you don't please the client, you're nothing. So that's where the wordsmithing came in. But that was a later development. Once I got into quite a lot of the jobs I did, we were quite a lot of the work we suddenly what we do. We went from the spark in the you know the in the sparkle in the eye to the finished product. So we wrote the scripts and wrote the the we didn't do the design, but I wrote the text and all the rest of it. So I wasn't just doing the consultancy and writing long reports to prop up tables. I was actually writing the script that people would read. And that was the bit at the end of the day that I became more interested in, um, which is where I started using the word wordsmith. But one of, the, one of the questions that you asked me is what have been some of my favorite projects? Um, I've done nearly 500. Over, not on my own, um, all of them. Um, Latterly on my own, but most of them in uh, company, first of all with Michael and then with other colleagues, and very often with designers as a pairing of consultancy, sometimes mm -hmm. with architects, and I've been very lucky to work with some of the leading architects, conservation and other architects. Um, and when I was trying to think of which ones were my favorites, I, I, I hit, a, hit, hit a blank wall. I just couldn't think. But thinking about it um, a little bit more slowly, while I was still with the Countryside Commission, I moonlighted, I moonlighted um, because somebody said, would I help her with a job at Edinburgh Castle? Well, there is probably no more iconic historic building in Scotland than Edinburgh Castle. So the idea of being able to work there was a bit special. And I would drive up on a Friday night, work over the weekend and go back the office on Monday said, no, I'm not really tired. <laughs> and it was a major job looking at the whole castle as a visitor attraction because it had too many visitors for the castle. So the, the engineers on our team built a tunnel under the castle for servicing purposes. So they didn't get in the way. It was still, and still is a, technically an army barracks. So you had the army, the public, and all the people servicing it from the people supplying the cafes to people supplying the army. And so, so I think probably as a first big job, that, that has to remain a favorite. They didn't do all the things we suggested, but I'm still friends with the organization. So the privilege, I had a key to part of the castle. I mean, wow. <laughs> you know. How do you get in? Um, so that was important. In terms of status, I think the other, org the other um, organization that I worked for, the other um, site that I worked for that probably has as much resonance in, um, sentimentally as anything else, was before the... Scotland didn't have national parks until 20, 2000, about 25 years ago. We didn't need them. We were a national park. We, we didn't have the pressures on most of the countryside that needed national parks there to protect. But things change. And Loch Lomond, of which you must have heard, and the Trossachs, which is an area, curiously enough, with a, effectively a Welsh name, the Trossachs means cross hills. The Loch Lomond and the Trossachs, that area just north of Glasgow, our biggest conurbation. Um, was established and before it was established I was asked to write the interpretive plan and that's probably the most important interpretive plan I've written and I worked closely with designers and we used a technique of 
everything turned up in fours. There were four areas, there were four this is for that. So we used a diamond shape and all the, the furniture became diamond shaped as well as the thinking. So we moved from the intellectual concept of a four corners to literally four corners. And that was terribly exciting, finally to get a designer to understand what we were trying to do. So that in terms of favorite projects, um, I did a lot of work in Wales for their conservation organization, which is called CADW, C-A-D-W. People think it's an abbreviation, it isn't. W is a bar verb in Welsh, it's an oo sound. So CADW means care, and it's their historic building government agency. And I did seven out of their 14 um, area and topical interpretive I did with others. Um, particularly Peter Seckham and Sarah Douglas, whom I think you know, um, we did them together. And uh, these were exciting because I was dealing with a whole country. All right, a small country, but we were looking at Wales as an first, it's the first industrial nation in the world. It was the first nation in the world to have more people employed in industry than in agriculture in the 1850s. Wow. Um, it's a formidable maritime heritage. So that was important. Lisa and I did a planning course at Brecon Beacons National Park in Wales, and I got a little bit of taste of it. You know, when I trace my own family heritage, it all goes back to Oxfordshire in England, to Scotland, to Ireland, and uh, that's my family heritage. And so it, it's been interesting to get little glimpses, and I don't fancy that we change much. A uh, young lady named Sunita Hilton, Dr. Sunita Hilton, did her PhD at Ohio State University with Gary. I think Mal she's now Sunita Welsh or Sunita something else. She's changed. She must be married and changed the name. She yeah. Married, she married an American and then Brecon Beacons hired her back and uh, she brought us over to do it. But Wales has an enormously proud heritage. And of course, Welsh is widely spoken. One of my favorite jobs was in the Brecon Beacons, where I was asked to write interpretive text for five waterfalls to go on panels, not to write the panels, but to do a kind of fragment slogan. And I was said, you've got 39 characters to work with, i.e. 39 letters. So I had to write five separate slow, um, little snippets, not exceeding 39 characters had to be translated into Welsh as well. Interestingly enough, and the same is true with Gaelic and Scotland, it tends to be English written first and then translated into the native language rather than the other way around. Um, there are lots of far too many reasons for that to, to worry about. These jobs and the many, I mean, as I say, there are far too many to list. Uh, some of them in faraway places. Um, I've worked in Wel with Welsh, not, not in Welsh, with Welsh, I've worked with Gaelic, I write in the Scots language, um, I've introduced um, words from other languages as well, and that goes right back to always being aware of another language being around, which I talked about. I mean, my son and grandsons live in Berlin, so German is spoken all the time in their family, so language I think is so important in interpretation, whether it's spoken language or written language, and it doesn't get the credit it deserves. Anybody can write. No, anybody can't write. They wouldn't ever go to anybody can design, but they're very often, oh no, one of our people has written a text and you read it and you say, forget it. Never get an expert to write interpretive text. They just don't know how to do it. A, they want to tell you what they know, rather than what they think you should know. And B, most of them are write far too long and I talk far too long. <laughs> <laughs> well, one of the challenges uh, Lisa took on a few years ago was National Park Service. They were trying to explain the research they do in national parks to the general public. And they would allow the research scientists to write the article, but then Lisa would be required to edit it and ch change it and uh, very often it was hard because it would get sent back to the scientist and they go well you removed a lot of what i said and she go well i 
I was looking for that understanding by your audience. Your audience doesn't read at the postdoctoral level that you're writing at. So it's it's always a challenge. I, I was very interested earlier when you were talking about architects. One of the conversations we often have in doing consultancy is uh, be careful the architect you pick because so many of them view themselves as artists and they're going to give you their artwork, not something consistent with the thematic historical nature of your particular site or your your park or your organization. And um, I see that in, I, it gets, it got us interested in tourism as well. We wrote a book, book called Put the Heart Back in Your Community. And I'm sure there's absolutely been dozens of people read it. Uh, that's a joke. You know, you don't, you always hope that thousands of people read your book, not dozens. But communities and organizations sometimes give away their heritage and their history to an architect or to a designer or a developer who doesn't have the same interest in the integrity of their story. I find architects tend to build monuments to themselves, which is what you were saying. Yeah. And I, I, without being in too much detail, because it'll identify them, one of the leading architect, conservation architects employed me to write the script for a new visitor center at a very old site, completely new and a very exciting building in which there was a wonderful staircase built in local natural stone. And we wanted to put a particular extract from a particular document on the wall of it on this so that people would see it as soon as they came in. They said, oh, no, no, you can't do that. It'll destroy the integrity of the building. And I said, but what's the building there to do? It was, so this is a difficulty and I love the people I'm talking about. Um, I don't think I've ever actually said any more about it to them, but it's a danger than designers designed to suit themselves, whereas they should be servants of the interpreter, not masters. One of your questions was, I've been a participant in developing professional networks. And that I think is something that I am immensely proud of an association, first of all, with SAIBH come AHI, which, as I say, in two years' time, we're going back to Wales, where we started um, to hold our, we've just decided that, it's not public, but it doesn't matter, people know, um, to, to celebrate our 50th anniversary. In uh, um, Vancouver, at your NAI meeting in Vancouver in 2007, I met Patrick Lanus from Germany, who I had met about six or eight years ago at an international conference in England, who was pursuing the idea of forming an European interpretation association. The previous effort had um, flourished briefly and then foundered because it was mainly academics and A, they didn't really understand some of them and B, it wasn't their first priority. And as you may recall, because you were there in 2007, we held a conference in Scotland called the Vital Spark, which is still the highlight um, run by my great friend and adversary, Bill Taylor, who was a wonderful chair and with whom I fought tooth and nail on some occasion. And we are still, he's now my, he now has a power of attorney over me. So he's one, um, literally, he's one of my closest friends. But Patrick came there and we managed afterwards to fit in half an hour at breakfast time to get started conversations on forming what by 2010, it took a little time, but with a great deal of help from Patrick and his wife Bettina and some money found by chance in Slovenia, we were able to form Interpret Europe. And I did a lot of the writing of that, the sort of formalities. I didn't write the constitution, nor would I have, because it was so Germanic, it just wasn't true. But I was the first chair of the supervisory committee of that. Uh, and just the idea of bringing together my step-grandmother from France, my son's son and grandson from Berlin, and all my friends in a European organization was immensely exciting, apart from anything else. 
So I'm immensely proud of that. Everything didn't go as smoothly as one would like, but that doesn't matter. It's still going. I'm no longer formally involved. I do help with translations of their stuff into English. <clears throat> and I'm still still a, a keen member. But we're now, what, 13 years on and about to hold a conference this coming year in um, a place called Koper, in just in Slovenia, near Trieste in Italy, on the Adriatic coast. But we'll also be in Ljubljana, where we were 10, 13 years ago, and ending up in Venice. So it's going to be an international conference, um, which is in the very north west corner of Slovenia. When we were in um, Freiburg for the second Interpret Europe conference um, after Ljubljana, we happened to have around the table people from Canada, from United States, from I think German, from Italy, from Germany, from Australia, and one or two others. There were seven or eight organizations represented and we suggested I don't know who it was who suggested I'll take the credit but I think it was a kind of emerged that we formed a global association to bring us all together in a very informal way no subscriptions no management and all the rest of it over the next year or two we drafted things and tried to get people to sign up and some did and some didn't and it failed it, it sort of it failed for a bit but it was, this, it was a resurgence of interest in Krakow. I'm no longer taking part. I thought there's a younger group of people. I've done enough. But I was in on the beginning of that too. So I have three organizations to, to my name. That's a global, uh, right? That's Global Association for Heritage Interpretation, right. Ga, known as GAHI. And excitingly, the New Mexican Association is part of that. Interpat, they call it. Were you involved at all back? Were you in Canada at the World First World Heritage Conference? And I've forgotten the name of the gentleman who put it together, but it was a Canadian. Don yeah, yeah. Were you at that no. meeting? I spoke at that meeting. I ended up, that in fact was the birthplace of NAI because Alan Kaplan from Western Interpreters, president, I was the president of AIN, the Eastern Group, and we shared a room at that first World Heritage Conference with the purpose of talking about bringing the two together. And we agreed at that. <laughs> when I was sick. I had the flu. And he, he brought me chicken soup and took care of me and kept me alive for four or five days. And uh, we agreed to point committee from each group. And that's literally where in 84, um, it took three years to kind of get it all done, but that's that's where it was born. In 88, it officially became NAI. Some of these gatherings, you asked about them, but I remember, and Twin Cities was important because it was my first introduction to NAI, which I've been now been a member for that length of since 1989. Although I think somewhere went wrong in the middle, but technically I've been a member for whatever is that, 40 years, 40 years plus. I mentioned Ljubljana, our, NEI, our Interpret Europe conference. One of the other Interpret Europe conference, and I think you possibly were at, was in Sigtuna in Sweden. Yes, that was excellent. That stands out to me, not only because I got, I got the nicest um, credit of Chuck Lennox that I've heard. I mean, I knew he was a nice guy, but he was mentoring a girl from Russia called Tanya. And she said, he is so kind kind to me yeah. and I have subsequently learned how kind so from memorable places and I think I probably met the other place I met I think was in either in Panama or Hawaii that I met Sheldon Johnson yeah Sheldon's an immense talent and we're still sort of in touch you know and I, I did a podcast with him and he he's brilliant I he, 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 he's second only to Barack Obama. <laughs> he's absolutely amazing. He's actually had many of the same qualities. Yes, he does. And by the way, the National Park Service really appreciates him. They know that they have a unique individual who... Yeah, he's a star. And during the podcast, I asked him, you haven't sought out superintendencies and kind of the higher roles. He says, no, I what I do is so important to me. I And I think 
I'm in the right place, so I'm going to keep doing it. I asked him the same question. Yeah. But some of the other memorable people, it was in Panama. I met a guy called Benny Wilson, who took us on a tour. And I was saying to Amy Lethbridge, who is another great, great grand, she was over for Bill Taylor's 70th part, birthday party last year, that uh, how impressive he was as a guy. And she said, oh, that's nice to hear. I trained him. I even gave a talk on Benny Wilson because he was the best tourist interpretive guide that I have come, come across anywhere in the world. Um, I think I tried to tell him, but he's so modest that he, he didn't want to know. Um, the other people, and I think it's worth mentioning a few other names that have been influential. I did mention Don Aldrich, of course, who was my mentor. Don got very tired of other people's interpretation and became a bit intolerant, which was sad. But we met a few years ago in a hotel in Perth, where I live, Perth, Scotland, not the little Perth in Australia. That's a Johnny, Johnny come lately. This is a real Perth. And we had lunch together. He was already two glasses of Shiraz up on me before jumping into his car. Never mind. He got home safely. But he said, that's the best conversation we've ever had. And I said, yes, why? He said, we never mentioned interpretation once. <laughs> That was on a Friday. He died on the Monday. But better, but he was immensely important. A poet friend of mine was influential because he taught me to write economically. He wrote a one-word poem, and you can't get better than that. And Sheldon, Sam, with whom I fundamentally disagree on just about everything, but is a wonderful friend. Um, and his name is writ large and around the world, which is lovely to know. Sam Ham. Um, I mentioned Sheldon, Freeman Tilden, obviously. I, when I started doing a teaching on an MSc course, which is the only master's course in Britain that teaches practical interpretation, there's one museum linked in Leicester, but one here is the only. Um, I went over Tilden and annotated. I couldn't find anything in the first part to disagree with. So I, I have to hold him up. And a lovely colleague of mine called Emma Stewart, one time came out with an immortal line at a conference when we were talking about wonderful places and landscape. She said, sometimes just let the wonderment do the interpretation. Absolutely. Uh, is there anything you're, you're hoping to still do in the profession that's important to you? No. Okay. I'd like to keep on writing if I'm asked, but nobody's asking me any longer. So, you know, I've had, I've, you know, every dog has his day and I'm not, I don't regret it. I had a wonderful time. I think the most important thing, the thing, the only thing left to do is to keep up with all the friends I've made. I mean, you know, like you, my inbox is, is international, it's global. And I would just wish everybody well, all the friends I've met over the many, many years here, there and everywhere. And let's keep in touch. Thank you again for joining me today on Reflections on Interpretation, and uh, I hope our paths cross in person, and I'm going to try to make one of your either AHI or European events in the next couple of years, because I just like to reconnect with a lot of you, and I've been enjoying watching Bill Taylor's travels on Facebook, so. Bill is a, well, as I told you, is a very, very close friend. He protects me. He looks after me. He feels some kind of obligation. I have no idea why, but I appreciate it. Goodbye and thanks. Safe journey in the next few years, my friend. And warm wishes to Lisa. Uh, and she would wish that back to you. Thanks again, Michael, for joining me today on Reflections on Interpretation. Next Friday, which would be September 22nd, I have Maricar Donato of Washington Tours in Washington, D.C. as my guest. I want to remind you that September 25th to October 4th, I have a virtual certified interpretive guide course via Zoom. You can learn more about that at interpnet.com and you can register there. October 13th, Lisa Brochu will offer a four-hour contract administration course via Zoom. On November 7th to 10th, she has an interpretive planning course four mornings, three hours each morning. You can learn more about both of those courses and register at artfeltassociates.com. Thanks again to Mark Stoffel for his beautiful mandolin music. This time, Buckminster Waltz. 
from his coffee and cake album. I hope you have a wonderful